All right, guys, welcome back to another very special episode of the Lockdown Lowdown. Join with me, as always, is Captain COVID, Andrew Stupart. Hello there. And a very special, I would say guest, but he's actually one of the original trio that, that helps start the podcast. Misha Aravena, will you please introduce yourself? He is back, ladies and gentlemen, after a good couple of months. Um, I have to correct you, though, Alpo, the original uh, idea maker, I, I would say, you know, I brought up this podcast to Stupart, who then have found you. And that's how it started. But for our listeners out there that don't know me, um, because it has been uh, a while, I was uh, away working with the mouse and my internet connection just uh, wasn't quite up to snuff to uh, record with these guys, but I am now on holiday, so I am back, ready to go. God, how I, I have missed the sultry sounds of Misha Aravena's voice. Oh, yes, I second that. <laughs> I, I bring the articulation, and every opinion that I make is the correct one, but alas... Um, so guys, why don't we get into it? So for our audience today, we're taking a little bit uh, of a break from some of the current affairs going on here in Canada, and we decided to do something fun. So we are doing the Back to the Future trilogy. Yes, one of the rare franchises that has not had a remake yet. I'm waiting for that announcement for them to remake Back to the Future. Thank God it has not happened. Um, and it hasn't been a series of seven, eight, nine films. It's a trilogy. It tells a complete story, uh, and I love that. So we're going to get on this discussion, but before I do that, let's, uh, well, how about it? Let's just get this show on the road. Roads. Where we're going, we don't need roads. I saw that coming a mile away, Stoops. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. to say that. Uh, obviously, quoting one of the taglines, probably probably the most famous line in the whole trilogy. Well, there's lots of them. I'm sure we will get lots of quotes as this episode progresses. But uh, guys, let's begin. So Back to the Future, directed by Robert Zemeckis uh, and uh, written by uh, him and his producing partner, Bob Gale. Um, basically, Robert Zemeckis was kind of like a director for hire who came under the wing of Steven Spielberg, like my goodness, who, like, uh, the guy is the luckiest person in the world. What a mentor to have, to bring you up in the film business, show you the ropes. Um, and Robert Zemeckis proved uh, his worth directing this film called Romancing the Stone with Michael Douglas, a nice little family adventure film, which did very well at the box office. Uh, he had this idea for Back to the Future, presented it to Spielberg and his producing partners. They loved the idea, thought it was so unique and interesting. They went out and started to film the movie with uh, not Michael J. Fox in the lead role, actually Eric Stoltz. Yes. He was in stuff like The Fly 2, awful, awful horror film. <laughs> Less yeah. said about that, the better. You can see some of that footage on YouTube. I totally know why they recast him after three weeks. He's just, he doesn't have the teenage quality. No, I, th no. I think he was, he was not good. Yeah. It, interestingly enough, it's, I, I'm glad you brought up Stoltz because I was reading the surprise, surprise, the Wikipedia page five minutes before going on this podcast. And like, <laughs> um, no, something that I realized that they had a huge list 
of uh, short shortlisted actors that they wanted to go through, including uh, Billy Zane, who uh, even though Billy Zane didn't actually get the lead role, obviously they ended up going with uh, uh, Family Ties star um, Michael J. Fox. Um, Billy Zane ended up being in the sequel as one of the uh, as one of the thugs. So very interesting fact there. Um, I didn't know yeah, that. and uh, interest and and just to just to paint a, a further picture, um, for, you know, expanding on. Misha's wonderful introduction. Yeah, when you think Robert Zemeckis, yes, like this, he was he was being mentored by Steven Spielberg. This thing was an Amblin Amblin production, which it was you know Steven Spielberg's production company. Um, this guy had had just rocked and rolled with you know something like um, the Indian the first Indiana Jones movie. He had E.T. So I mean everyone and, and Jaws coming you know ten years before that. So Steven Spielberg was like the hot director at the time. And then, you know, what, what happened was you have Zemeckis breaking in with this wonderful, wonderful movie that still holds up today in this trilogy that it became. And then he, and then, and then fast forward, you have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, classic, um, one of the first full length movies where, where they, they, oh, yeah. they did a great job of mixing, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, real life actors, live action actors with, with animation. Wonderful. One of my favorite movies of all time, Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1989. Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, if that hasn't convinced you what uh, a, a, an accomplished director Robert Zemeckis is, well, Jenny and I will like peas and carrots. Life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Forrest fucking Gump. No I mean, way. Thor no way. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump was like, the, in, my, in my mind, was like the movie of the nineties. It was like, when you think of like one of the best movies of the nineties, like um, in terms of performance and, and just being well, well remembered and appreciated by all by audiences, Forrest Gump comes to mind. And that was a Zemeckis film. Actually, it's, it's interesting that, that he is behind Forrest Gump because I think of um, the back to the future trilogy as kind of um similar in the way that it it weaves its storyline throughout american history oh, yeah. and by doing that it it sort of like solidifies itself as as part of american culture yeah. in the same way that that forrest gump did mm -hmm. totally man that's a great point and i and I, that's what i love about forrest gump is that you see forrest who's this he he's a bet i hate to i don't i don't know what the politically correct term is but he's slightly mentally retarded or whatever and he's just this guy who's like just observes everything at face differently value. advantaged he's differently advantaged i'm so sorry to all the listeners out there who i may have offended i mean the the terms change all the time he's differently advantaged thank you alex and he's just this innocent guy who just like sees everything at face value he doesn't you know, he, and he's just innocently experiencing all these things in life, the Vietnam War, you know, being a ping pong like champion, um, like, all, and the list goes on and on and on all these different things that he's taking part in. And, and it's so true that we see that we see as as Marty's going to these different points in time, you know, all these key events that they like they pepper into the script. And it's just fantastic. So that's a great point, Alex. You know what, um, we'll, we'll, I'll get it back to back in Back to the Future. One thing I do want to say about Forrest Gump, Zemeckis also did a wonderful film called Used Cars with Russell, uh, with Kurt Russell. He also did Castaway with Tom Hanks, another classic, right? He's just all around a great director. But the thing about Forrest Gump is that it's such a deep film, 
But if you boil it down on the stove, the movie is just about an idiot who succeeds. Oh, that's that, and maybe and again, you're not being politically correct there, but uh, yeah, it's true. It's that's true, the man. beautiful thing about America: idiots can succeed. In idiots America. can succeed, and they can they can uh, become fisher, you know, um, uh, fishing boat enterprise CEOs and uh, fighting the war and uh, all, and everything in between. I think we'll have to do a, a Forrest Gump show. We'll have to do a Forrest Gump episode. But yeah, Zemeckis, I think we all agree, like a Zemeckis is is a, is a pretty friggin' accomplished uh, director. Absolutely. So let's bring this back to the first Back to the Future, released in 1985. So Eric Stoltz did get replaced. Michael J. Fox was doing uh, family ties during the day, working 12 hours days, and was shooting Back to the Future at night. So he was working 20-hour days. Reminds me of working for Disney. I can kind of relate now. I know what he was going through. Showbiz can be like that. It, it can be ruthless, your scheduling. Um, but it came out, and uh, I'll give some of my thoughts briefly before I give it over to you, Alpo. This is one of my favorite trilogies of all time. And in terms of the original, number one, I think it succeeds. It's highly imaginative. It's such an imaginative, intelligent film. The, the photography by Dean Cundy that did Jurassic Park, um, a lot of the John Carpenter films, Halloween, Escape from New York. He's like Spielberg's guy. Uh, it's a beautiful film to look at. The sentimentality is just right. It doesn't get so sugary sweet, but takes itself seriously enough. And it has great comedic elements, which still hold up. It's a great balance of drama, emotion, um, and comedy, which a lot of films don't get. And then the heart of the film for me, is the relationship between Doc Brown and Marty McFly. Oh yeah. Um, before I give it to you, Alpo, uh, I know a film is great for me when, when the credits roll and I'm thinking about the characters after. Yeah, like yeah. When, when the trilogy ends, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I, I say to myself, what happens with Marty and Doc Brown? Does Marty go and visit him and still hang out or is the relationship over? And that's always a great, a good sign for a good film for me is if I'm thinking about the characters when the credits roll. Um, but those are some of my initial brief thoughts. Alpo, what do you think about the first Back to the Future or the trilogy as a whole? Well, as I was watching the three movies, I, I kind of asked myself, you know, this character, you're, you're the writer sitting down with these characters and the time machine, and you're making the decision, where am I going to send these people? Uh, where, wh what number are they going to plug into the dashboard and, and zip off to, you know? Um, it's very clear to me why they chose 1955 or, or at least that period in the fifties. Um, to me, it was a way for the writers to really tap into that nostalgia factor of audiences mm. at the time. Yeah. Um, it being 30 years earlier, um, audiences at that time would have had memories, uh, especially the adults watching the film would have had memories of, of their childhood mm -hmm. in the fifties. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think that that's why they chose that. And that's why it really like resonated with people so much. Um, the second and third movie, obviously they couldn't do the exact same thing. So in mm -hmm. the second one, they went into the future and then, of course, they did go back to the 50s for a little while. In the third one, they went, you know, back to the, you know, 1800s or something like that. Um, 
and and there's something missing there's something about the fact that like you know this is a time period that you could you could tell like was intended to really win the hearts of the audience and then of course us looking back at that movie now you know we grew up in the 80s so so we also yeah. look back at that movie with this intense nostalgia nostalgia um, yeah I think that that movie, like the first movie, won its way into the, the heart and soul of, of uh, you know, American audiences in a way that, that, you know, no other sort of comedy, sci-fi, fun movie ever has since then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Stoops, you got some uh, initial thoughts on that? I do, yeah. No, I love what you said, Albo, and, and just kind of building on that, I think... So you're right. Definitely. There's, there's that, that, that idea of people going to the cinema at that time would be thinking back to their childhoods. I don't dispute that what you're saying there. Another thing that I read all, you know, again, five minutes before going on the podcast on Wikipedia was, I think it was either Bob Gale or Zemeckis or one of the writers had talked about what would it be like if I went back and, 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 and hung out with my dad in high school, would we get along? That was his question. And you can definitely look it up on the Wikipedia page or, or any sort of IMDb or whatever you, if you want more insight. But basically it was the idea like, would my dad and I get along if we were both 17, 18 together? And so that's what sparked the idea of going back um, and, and, you know, if let's say this guy was 30 when he had his kids or whatever, it's the idea, I think, I think that's why they said it in that time frame. They want to make it 30 years back so you could still go back to people who are in your life, right? And this, and in this case, it's your, it's your family, it's your, it's your dad, it's your mom, right? And I think that's what's so <laughs> um, great about this film is not only is it a time travel film. I mean, it has, it has certain time travel theory elements, and I'm kind of a, a nerd when it comes to that stuff. Like I'm into string theory, and I've watched all the videos about the fourth dimension. If you know, if if um, height, width, and length are the third you know first second and third dimensions then time is the fourth dimension there's the fifth sixth whatever and so doc brown actually goes into a bit of that and he goes well we've skewed down into this timeline and this is why we can't go back you know to this future because it's going to be the future that that was caused by you know when we when he had the almanac blah 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 so there is a lot of that time travel theory in there first of all which is awesome and i love it and i geek out about it but the other thing it's like it makes you so uncomfortable that this 17 year old boy is inadvertently put in a position where his mom's hitting on it. And you know, <laughs> the whole thing is, yeah. the whole thing is about him trying to, he's this cool collected um, guy who's like, he's in a band and he's cool. And he has got, and, 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 and he's got his girlfriend, Jennifer in real life. He's, he's good at getting the ladies and, and he has to, he has to make his mom unfall in love with him and fall in love with this nerdy like the guy with absolutely no confidence um, who's very introverted, doesn't have, and very clumsy and just doesn't have a good self, you know, any self-confidence. And so he's, it's, it's a real challenge he has on his hands to, to try to get, try and get um, George and uh, George McFly and um, Lorraine back together. And it's so fucking creepy when you see him in the car and she's like, Oh, Marty, why don't we just park? And she's like drinking the, you know, swigging a little bit of um, whiskey that she swiped from her, her um, old lady's her liquor cabinet. And yeah. she wants her son to fuck her in the car. It's not creepy, according to Pornhub. 
It's actually quite common. I mean, I was thinking, I was <laughs> yeah. thinking about this. What made you more uncomfortable? Seeing Luke and Leia kiss and then seeing Back to the Future where you find, or sorry, Empire Strikes Back where you find out that they're brother and sister or seeing Marty in the car about to make out with his mom. But here's the thing. Um, the whole relationship with his mother when he goes back in time, that is so brilliant because to me, it's not creepy at all. The idea is creepy, but the way they shoot it and write it and present it, that could have been really, really risky. Like, let's do a whole movie about a, uh, about a guy that is trying to not fall in love with his mom, but the mom has uh, the hots for him. That could have made the audience really uncomfortable, but it doesn't. And that's the but brilliance. It's all about how film. Michael J. Fox acts in those. Oh, scenes. it's how he played it. I think so. 100%. Yeah. It's how he played it. And he, and they played it so well, like his, yeah. the chemistry between him and, and Leah Thompson. And then that, that triangle between, you know, uh, Michael J. Fox, Crispin Glover, who's actually younger than him in real life, but they did, they did the makeup so that in 1985, like they're all around the same age, right? Jennifer, um, Marty, um, Lorraine, and sorry, the actors that play them, they're all around the same age in real life. And it's, and the makeup is so well done. I actually made a comment to you, Alpo and, and Al, or, uh, Misha um, in the, in the chat earlier that the made the way they do the makeup to have, these guys being portrayed in 2015 in the sequel and then 1955 and 1985 is so well done. And the way that the characters have to change the way that they portray themselves at these different points in their lives is so brilliant. And you guys are right in the fact that if it was any other director, any other screenplay, people would be very squirmy and uncomfortable in their seats. But because of the way that the script was executed and because of the way that uh, Leah Thompson and, and Michael J. Fox played those roles, and played off each other it worked in a comedic way it yes brilliant. you know brilliant. what we talk a lot when we do our film reviews about tone like we've done blade runner before blade runner has a very good tone and atmosphere this film's tone is perfect like i said balancing the comedy yeah. the humor yeah. the sentimentality not getting too over the top and ridiculous but finding just the right note that it, it warms your heart when the film is over right um, I want to talk about some of my favorite scenes. I love the scene when they go to the under the sea dance at the end and the photograph that he has of his family. He is starting to fade away yes. as his parents are getting more distant. And he sings, go, go, Johnny, go, go, go. <laughs> I love that song. That sequence is awesome. Um, I want to give uh, some credit to the actor. I believe his name is Tom Wilson that plays Biff. Yes. Um, in all three films across, but especially in this one, he creates a great presence. You know, come here, butthead. Hello, McFly. Those are part of pulp culture, those quotes, right? Um, I think all, and let's not forget the wonderful, wonderful Christopher Lloyd. Again, oh, he plays this crazy, genius. demented genius. doctor, which could just, he could just be like a crazy old man, but but you feel for him and it's very sentimental and funny. So he hits just the right note um and, and i remember as a kid enough, oh, go sorry, ahead, yeah. christopher lloyd started off i think it was in the 1970s uh, show i think it was called taxi so he actually started out on tv and it was so strange seeing him in taxi it was when i was working in television we used to run it as part of our retro classic so i'm sitting there at work and every once in a while i would glimpse out of the corner of my eye at, at our screens and i'd be like oh that guy that guy with the brown hair who's doing the comedic comedic shtick seems a little bit familiar and then it it dawned on me that it was 
Christopher Lloyd, because I've only ever seen him bald, like in Adam's family. In Adam's yeah. family, he's Lester. You know, you move forward six years, 1991, Adam's family and Adam's family values. Brilliant performance of him um, playing uh, Gomez Adams' uh, older brother, who's has a he's, he's a bit of an oddball character. But that that's what Christopher Lloyd does. He plays these eccentric oddball characters so well i mean i could list him off he was again adam's family adam adam's family values as as uh, lester brilliant performance there just he just nailed that character and and really helped take adam's family um to a 90s audience with his portrayal in that movie with a wonderful cast in that movie as well and then if you look at him even in who framed roger rabbit as like the um He's like the evil tune mastermind who's disguised as a as a real guy. And I remember that scene where his, his eyeballs pop out and you can see that and, and these, these cartoon eyeballs shoot out. Um, he's just like this brilliant tune mastermind and who framed Roger Rabbit. He did, he did a brilliant performance there. And, and if we go back a couple of years to um, the the, uh, the Back to the Future you know, trilogy, which was really his his I think his. Um, his most well-known role as Doc Brown, he just plays it so well. Uh, and, and I always remember his, his frizzy, like messed up what uh, white hair. So yeah, to see him saying. back in the seventies with Brown hair, it was so weird. Cause you just, you, you, you know, you know, you have to remember that the Rick and Morty, the, 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 the doctor from Rick and Morty, is that Morty or Rick? I always forget. It's kind of based off of them. Yeah. yeah, no, it's based off of them. But no, yeah. who's 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 the scientist in Rick and Morty? Oh, I don't know. Anyways, know the, 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 like. the crazy scientist in Rick and Morty is based off of Doc Brown. And so his his character of as the of the ex, uh, eccentric professor has lived on in pop culture um, to this day. Absolutely. Um, Alpo, do you have any like favorite scenes or any more thoughts on the first Back to the Future? I just love Biff Tannen in this movie so yes. much. Um, hello, McFly. <laughs> Is anybody home? Hello, McFly. Oh, my God. There's just something about him as the bully character. Yes. Um, yes. That was just like so good. And it and they kept him through all three movies. And I don't know, maybe it was getting a little bit tired by the third movie, but, uh, but man, the, some of those first scenes were just like, he was just like the perfect bully. And, yeah. and for him yeah. to, uh, for uh, Marty McFly to go back in time and to realize that his dad, uh, you know, a guy that presumably he respects uh, as most of us respect our dads, um, you know, he goes back and his dad is just like, totally uh, a doormat for this guy yeah. oh yeah um yeah. like man that that character just really just made this uh movie and arguably the trilogy what it is um, and it's funny how that reverts at the end yeah. when now biff kind of becomes like the kind of nerd you know his shoulders are shrugged oh he's yeah i love that and he's like that. oh biff you know, don't miss uh, that spot again. And he's like, oh, oh I got that second wax of coat on the car. Yeah, you know, that second, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, no, one thing I do want to say, and I'm sorry, before we move on to the next one, there's, I could talk about the first one for like a fucking hour. I love the first one. It set the, it set the whole thing in motion, right? Um, one thing, I, I hate to go to a dark place, but we, something I talked about in the chat was, even though this is a science fiction, time travel, comedy, adventure, whatever you want to call it, there were some really dark moments in the first one and in the second one. 
even the third one a little bit actually. And I'll and I'll, I'm not gonna lie, like when in that whole setup where they're where where Marty's trying to get George to save the day, uh, the whole setup is that they're going and parking in this parking lot, and and obviously uh, Leah Thompson's character, uh, Marty's mom, Lorraine is is really attracted to marty which obviously i've talked about earlier kind of gross or whatever so the whole idea is he's trying to pretend to like get too you know close with her so so he can set it up for george to come in and save the day and punch him out or whatever but the things take a turn and biff actually comes in and that seems a little bit dark because if you watch it through today's lenses it probably wouldn't be as accepted as it was in 1985 it's a rape scene Yes, yeah. not let's not let's call it for what it is. It's a fucking rape scene. They wouldn't go. It's interesting how um, because yeah. he was like so aggressive and so rapey um, that it just like it felt that much better when he punched him in the face. Oh yeah, you know, it's like yeah. that that emotional catharsis was yeah. created uh, because of that. You know, it, it's so I don't know like. Again, Hollywood these days probably would have treated that differently. Yes. And because of that, I don't think that you get those big emotional impacts. Uh, oh, it's the reward. Sometimes. 100%, Alex. Oh, I agree. It's the reward of seeing this asshole basically take holding, pinning down this, this woman in her, in her car who's completely powerless and then having that moment at the end where George becomes the hero and he's gone from zero to hero and he is like the cool guy in the school oh and I remember one of the comments oh you think about running for president of the school uh, George whatever he's this hero now um, which puts him in a great light for for Leah Thompson's character and that's what makes them go happily ever after so it's that beautiful moment Alex I couldn't agree with you more so yeah excellent film all around and um, and I and I watch it at least once every two or three years for sure. Yeah, there's one um, thing I don't really understand is like how uh, uh, Marty McFly basically puts this whole plan in motion in order to get him to be the uh, to get his dad to be the hero um, to you know to win Lorraine's attention and everything like that, basically so that his parents can get together in the future and have him. Um, but then he goes on stage and then he just wails this incredible, uh, you know, Johnny B. Good song. Like, doesn't that kind of threaten his whole plan? Like, isn't there a chance that she could see that and see how incredibly talented of a singer and a guitar player he is? And then just totally just like undo all the work that he just did. I think you're, you're, you're reaching at straws there a little bit, but one thing I will say all time travel movies, if you really dissect them frame by frame, you'll find plot holes. Oh, yeah. Like, like, like yeah. it's just, it comes with the territory of any time travel film. Yeah. But when it's not meant to be, when it's more fantastical, like Back to the Future is, you can forgive more. And I think the script is so good that even if I truly went through it frame by frame, I wouldn't find very much. Um, but there's always uh, things to nitpick with that. But I do want to say, before we move on to the second film, I th there's one line in Back to the Future that I love near the beginning of the film when uh, Marty McFly is explaining to Doc Brown that he's from the future and Doc Brown doesn't believe him and he goes, all right, future boy, well, tell me, who's the president of the United States in the 1980s? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the actor. Yeah. Like, that could never happen. I love it. I love and it. 
Lo and behold, it did. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry, one more, one more. I'm going to yeah. do one more and then I promise we'll move on. So, there, I mean, I could sit here for a half an hour with my favorite one-liners from this movie because it's just the line, the, the script was just pure gold. And, and, and these lines stick with us 37 years later. Okay. One of them, I, one of the things I love is that rock and roll was actually introduced by Marty because, <laughs> you know, you have, you have Marvin Berry, this character who's on the phone. He goes, Hey, Chuck. It's your cousin. Listen to this. Marvin Berry, as in like he's talking to Chuck Berry, who was like one of the fathers of rock and roll. And it's him listening to Marty uh, on the phone, hearing this music that inspired him to become a rock and roll star later. So it's like it's like it basically the scriptwriters basically gave credit to Marty's character for inventing rock and roll, <laughs> which is fantastic. I love that scene <laughs> under the sea dance. I love it. That is awesome. Um, all right, guys, let's go to back uh, to the future part two. So parts two and three, after the success of the first film, which was absolutely lauded critically and commercially and made a boatload of money. So they filmed the next two films back to back, which I, I can't remember. It requires some more research if that was the first time that had ever been done. Um, but it hasn't been done that many times in the history of Hollywood. Back to back? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a risk to do yeah. that it's happened a couple of times but it usually doesn't matrix happen matrix reloaded and matrix revolutions that was one and i think the lord of the rings trilogy yeah uh, is another so one but it's not that's basically when they wrap one shoot and then they just start shooting the next one right away yeah and they shoot them t- at the same time like there's yeah. no break yeah they were i think the misha i think the reason for that i think um based on the research that i've done in the documentaries i've watched i think they actually intended for it to be one movie but there was just so many you know like when you shoot a movie and then you have to like drop stuff on the cutting room floor you have to make very difficult decisions about what scenes to keep in and what to keep out you want to keep them the the plot and and the film itself pacing in a certain way that you you don't want your audience to be sitting there for two and a half hours if it's if it's a family movie um two and a half and three hour movies only work when it's a certain audience in mind. But when this is a family going movie, you want it to be an hour and a half, two hours tops. And yeah. so if memory, if memory serves, um, they actually intended to, for this to be one long movie, but because there were so many good moments in both of them, they actually cut it in half, which is why when you see the second one, it's literally where the other one like left off. And there's actually like a bit of overlap where they replay the last scene from part two and then have that marry right into part three, which is a total 180 when we go back into the 1885 um, in sort of the, the gunslinger era, right? So it was, I think it, I, if memory serves, I think it was supposed to be one movie, um, which is why they shot it at the same time, but ultimately it ended up being two movies, um, which makes sense because one of them's, you know, future-based and, the, and it's the darker one, um, you know, much like we've, like much like what we saw with, Empire Strikes Back or any middle middle part of the trilogy, the middle one's always the dark one. And then the characters are at their weakest. It's 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 the dark one in the middle. And at the end, you have something a little bit lighter, right? But I love the second one. I definitely love the second one. Yes. And and speaking of the second one, it starts off in the future and it 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 centers around this almanac book, which Biff gets his hand, goes back in time, and basically uses it to for profiteering and basically two alternate universes uh, are created and Doc Brown and Marty McFly have to go back in time and kind of fix it get the almanac back so for this one there's much more of a MacGuffin it's kind of like Indiana Jones there's something that they're going uh, after in particular 
right? It was in the first one, it was more the idea of trying to fix uh, a, a couple's relationship, whereas, whereas this, they're actually um, trying to get an actual object. But the thing with the second poem, what I love about it is the tone is completely different from the first film. You have this sentimentality, this warmth of the first film, and the second film is very, very dark. I think of that scene in uh, Biff's palace when he's got like yes. the hookers in the hot tub and he's talking to Lorraine about getting the boob job and she's like, she's had yes. the boob job. Um, and there's parts when like he threatens Marty with the gun that he's going to kill him. So it takes a very different shift tone wise. But I, what I love about the film is revisiting the scenes in the first film and trying to avoid Marty, the other Doc Brown at all costs. So they don't create this, like catastrophic future i i love that it creates such a great sense of urgency so between that and the tone i think a very successful sequel is created um and then the the, the makeup effects you talked about it with the family with them playing them older selves really really well done yeah i love the second film alpo do you have any yeah. thoughts on the second one i i had fond memories of this movie and then when i went to do a little rewatch for the podcast um you know, sort of right away, it sort of sucks you back into the action. Um, you know, so, you know, Doc Brown shows up and we have to go back. We have to go back to the future. It's about your kids, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, it's like you don't have a second to breathe and you're like sucked right back in there. So they go off to the future. And I really felt like um, it was really clunky at that point that it seemed like the dialogue was clunky. Um, they were also using, you know, obviously they're showing off what the future looks like, right? And, uh, you know, the computer, um, like computer animation was sort of like introduced in this movie. It was like in its very, very infancy. So that was obviously clunky. You know, they have these weird, like, it's like a 50s diner and so they're like talking about stuff from the 50s as if it was from a long time ago oh which is yeah. like weird and and they've got these like video things where you're supposed to place your order but it's like michael jackson and i can't really tell is that is that actually michael jackson no it's an impersonator it's an impersonator an impersonator or is it yes. a, or is it a 3d thing that they're trying to do i couldn't tell what i was looking yeah. at and it, and it just it was weird and it was awkward and then the introduction of the the future biff the uh, his name is griff tannen um as much as i love the the actor that that played biff tannen um this character was just a mess i i, I thought i felt like it was just like this weird like i'm gonna be like biff but just slightly um slightly different than biff and so he has this like gruff kind of voice and it, it's just not good um so i when i was watching this i was like i i seem to remember this being a good movie like what what is happening here it feels like uh you know it feels like return of the jedi uh like a like a you know the next uh star wars movie that came out or something like that mm. Mm. awful uh but they really sort of pulled things together. Like after the first few scenes, like by the second act, I was completely invested in the characters again. Um, and of course, like really once they went back to the fifties again, that's when it really 
sort of caught its stride again and i was enjoying that movie just as much as as the first movie yeah by the the end they did such an amazing job of sort of sort of weaving that storyline in with the original storyline of the first movie which you've never seen that before um, yeah, totally, so totally. I don't think I've ever seen that since since that movie where you take the original storyline and you manage to fit a new storyline into it. It's it's oh just- yeah, it's really well done, really well done. Um, or were you or anything else, or can I jump um, in? Yeah, I, I also want to talk about uh, the digital compositing. Um, oh yeah, that was done yeah. in the second movie because this is this is where uh, industrial light and magic really really went to town and tried a whole bunch of new tricks. Um, like, like I was saying the the uh, computer animation wasn't quite there, but there was a lot of stuff done with um, what they call the Vista glide motion control camera system. And that's where you have a computer automated camera. So, so your camera can make movements and follow like a stop motion car or whatever it is. And then you can program it to make that exact same movement again at, at a later time. So you can use that to sort of build all, all of these things, things that, you know, are, are kind of commonplace today, all done in the computer. It's yeah. this, it's this mix of computerized motion control with practical effects um, so you have this kind of like blend of the two that you like, you know, it's just this perfect period in time where they managed yeah. to do stuff like that, where it doesn't look the same anymore. No. And it's, I, you made a great point there. So uh, first of all, I'm going to go before I, I jump on that. I just want to go back. I did fact check a little bit. I was actually a little bit wrong. Um, they, so they did intend to have a, a two and three in episode two and three. Um, and I think they actually were supposed to be separate movies, but they did film them back to back. And in fact, what I was just reading was while two was just getting into the editing room, that's when they started rolling three. So I don't think it was supposed to be one long movie. I think they just shot them back to back, um, because they, they knew, you know, because of the commercial, I think it was pretty safe that it would do well because of the commercial success of the first one. So literally as they're, you know, getting this thing into editing number two, they're, they're, they're shooting number three. So it was a very tight process. Um, but yeah, Alpo, I couldn't agree with you more talking about the special effects. I mean, th- don't forget, this was still the late eighties. So we, and you have to remember that the big boom of CGI um, came around the time of like Terminator two, you had the first fully animated um, CGI character T2 anytime that he's taking a bullet or whatever or reforming himself um, that's James Cameron's technology right and then James Cameron um, paved the way for Jurassic Park another St- Spielberg production right and then we have Toy Story in the mid 90s which is a full feature film that's completely animated and then of course Star Wars episode um episode one phantom menace with a full jar jar binks you know animated character but this was all this was way before that right this was this was way before that and so this was just at the beginning of like the really rough stages of of cgi so you still had to be very imaginative and they were so fortunate that they had um ilm industrial light and magic like you said working on this because this is this is the the team that brought star wars um you know, into you know, to, to it made it what it was, right? 
in the 70s and 80s. So to have that team working on the film and doing these these computer animated effects, uh, com you know, combined with practical effects um, was just mind blowing. And so, uh, you know, putting the effects aside, what I love about this movie is the exploration of the future that we've already surpassed. Because if you think about it, we're in 2022. At the time of recording this podcast, we are in February 2022. So we're actually seven years past what their future was. And so, but this, but for them, this was still, you know, almost 30 years away. Um, so they had to have a lot of imagination. I mean, let me just list off the things. Self-drying clothes, hoverboards, um, uh, what else? You know, projections of sharks coming at you in 3D in the middle of a of a, of a town square. Still looks um, fake. You know, it, you know, soda soda cans that that pop up through through the table when you say the word Pepsi. Uh, Micro pizzas. Micro pizzas getting enlarged in a in an instantaneously in a in a microwave super microwave oven. You have, uh, you know, you know these these the 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 scenery channel being broadcast like just all these all these you know a lot of imagination and while we don't truly have hoverboards at scale in 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 society yet some of these things some of these things have come true right like the idea of basically what they're doing with the boss like the video call you remember with needles the video call and then he gets and then he ends up getting fired because his boss chimes in and goes McFly you're fired and so everybody's working Zoom. from home on Zoom. He's working from home on Zoom. So some of these things have actually come to fruition, right? Like 3D movies, like, um, you know, holograms, this and stuff like virtual reality. Some of that stuff, like, you know, is coming in, is becoming a reality, right? And so it's interesting to see, you know, that these guys had to imagine 30 years out what it would be. And some of these things are actually kind of sort of, coming to light. I mean, look, look at Neuralink, which is um, Elon Musk's, one of Elon Musk's babies, right? Neuralink's, right? And, and one of the, one of the, the, the um, comments that Doc Brown makes is he's warning Marty about going in and stopping his son from, from ruining his life is, you know, um, that, that uh, Biff Jr. kind of has a couple screws loose in his, in his, in his uh, implants, right? So it's interesting to see that, that moving forward to 2015, 2020, 2022, we actually do have some neurotechnology that's being developed by uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. What I the, love other, about the other thing yeah. is, is um, uh, what's the uh, junior Marty McFly, uh, the son of Marty McFly? Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting, like how he sort of walks in and he turns the television on and he's like, okay, television, he's got voice activated control, yes. uh, put yes. on channel 126, 37, yes. the weather channel, put on yes. this, this, that, the other, yes. he's watching like six channels all at the same time. And it's not completely, um, that's not completely unrealistic this no. day and age. I mean, no. sometimes no. I'm sitting there watching a movie, I'm texting people on my phone and then somebody sends me a YouTube video. And next thing you know, I'm watching a YouTube video while I'm watching a movie. Uh, it's like yeah. this oversaturation yeah. of media yes. is, is definitely realistic. That's for and sure. just, and one more thing on top of that, Alpo couldn't agree with you more, but just think about the simplicity of the technology that's called picture in picture. Yeah. So mm -hmm. anyways, we've been, we've been jabbing a lot. I, I'm, I'm hoping that Misha, um, bef you know, before we move on to the, 
the third one, I was wondering if we could get you uh, to chime back in for us on, on episode yeah. two here. No, uh, I, I love Back to the Future 2. I really like the ending, uh, the cliffhanger, which the Simpsons yes. did a funny parody of. But, you know, Doc Brown is in the, the, the DeLorean and he gets struck by lightning. Marty thinks he's dead and this mysterious car pulls up. And this really, oh, yeah. really freaky looking dude who is very, very threatening, plays it just right, reaches into his pocket. You think he's going to grab some type of, uh, of a weapon. Yeah. Uh, and he gives it to Marty McFly and he totally changes his attitude. Like This has been sitting in the post office for a hundred years. We all thought you weren't going to show, but I got proven right. And he reads it and the doc is alive, living in the old West. And then it says that to be concluded, right? It just ends on such a cliffhanger that you want to see the next movie so badly. And I think the next one was released only six months after that one. Um, my final thoughts with this film, and it's kind of something for all three of the films, what I love about these films, they are truly an actor's showcase. Yeah, yeah. Michael J. Fox plays different variations of different Martys uh, through generations, right? And you see this as an actor. Yeah, Biff, <laughs> right? That actor, Tom Wilson, you, you see his range and how he can play menacing and threatening and, and being clumsy and a buffoon at the same time. Um, and as an actor myself, those are the kind of scripts you always... Yep. want to yep. uh play in because it gives you so much meat but yep. yes i love this film does anyone have any final thoughts before we move on to the last i do one? i i always say oh let's move on to the next one and then something else comes to my head because i'm so fucking scatterbrained that way i just want to reiterate my thoughts around time travel theory i mean this don't forget this is a family film so they don't want to take you like too far into it but they actually do they a do. pretty good job of like explaining like basic time travel theory to an audience that you're assuming is anywhere from six years old to 50 you know to you know their parents age 55 plus so you have to you have to make it accessible to people of different age groups right but they do a fantastic job and i know what i really love about this movie is it makes me think about uh, a, a sound of thunder which was um by ray bradbury um, which is which is a classic science fiction short story um, where it's the idea of the butterfly effect, where if you if you go back to the dinosaur ages and step on a butterfly, um, that can have a ripple effect on the future. And you may have a different president. Uh, and when you when you get back to the future, um, you may have there may be a tidal wave that comes and wipes out your town. There may be a comet that comes and hits. So, so the littlest thing that you do in the past can have a huge effect because everything's connected. Everything in life is connected. And so one of the things that Doc Brown always says as, oh, as, yeah. as someone who's obviously done a lot of theorizing about time travel in order to, you know, invent this time machine is don't talk to anyone. Don't, you know, look at anyone, you know, change those shoes. I remember in the third one, he's like, you shouldn't have even worn those to the future. If you're going to go back into, sorry, you shouldn't have worn those in 1955. If you're going to go back into 1890, 1885, put on some cowboy boots. No one should see you in Nikes because then that's, you know, and so there's, a, and so one of the key things that I really love about the second one is that Mar Marty, you know, they go to the future um, old grandpa Biff, old Biff gets his hand on the almanac, goes back and hands it to his younger self in 1955. And, and then, so they, and then meanwhile, they, you know, Marty and doc go back, go in the DeLorean, go back to 1985, unbeknownst to them, the, you know, Biff has the almanac. So they don't know that. Right. And so they go back to 1985 and it's a brand new 1985. 
Um, there's a whole new family living in, in, Do in uh, Marty's old house. Um, the neighborhood has changed. Um, he's, he's living in this, on the penthouse of this fucking, you know, um, skyscraper, uh, you know, where, where his, he finds out his father's been killed, um, by Biff. Biff's now married to his mother. And so this is a very dark reality. And so we have to explain how we got there. Number one, um, by the fact that's, that something in, in earlier on in the fifties, was a chain reaction that that caused this new variant this new you know if 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 time is like this like a like a like a a one way you know like um uh if this is if this line is time what we've done Linear, is we've skewed yeah. we've skewed and created a new reality from that convergence point in 1955 where younger biff had the almanac from from older biff right but you cannot go back to the future and correct it because that's going to be the future that's also on this timeline. So you have to go back to the 1955 before the almanac was handed off in order to correct that. And you could, it's such a mind fuck. And it really, and it actually inspires me to look at like string theory because I am fascinated by time travel theory. Even though time travel is not possible right now, it is such a fucking mind fuck to think about. Now, did anybody else have that moment where you realize that future Biff, where he he's like the president and everything like that, this is Donald Trump? <laughs> a little bit, a little, a little bit, bit. Yeah. a little bit. I, that's all I saw. I'm like, wow, that is Trump right there. They predicted it. The hair <laughs> and everything. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I went on a huge tangent. I know that was much longer. We're used to it. Don't worry. We're used to it. <laughs> but I know I go on tangents all the time. If you guys have are tuning in for the first time to the, to the lockdown lowdown, this is just a typical Stupart tangent. But I did want to get the point out there about time travel because it's it, I mean, the movie does an exemplary job of simplifying time travel theory and making it making it accessible to all audiences. Well, with that being said, then let us move on to the third film released only six months after the second one. Set in the Old West, uh, basically Marty McFly goes to save Doc Brown, who's living there as a blacksmith. Uh, there's a love interest intro introduced now, and it is the concluding film. And before we get into the details of this film, um, when I first watched this film many years ago, I didn't like it. I definitely thought it was the, the lesser of the three. As the years have gone by, I have warmed up to it a lot. And I definitely think it's a good film. It's a well-made, it's a very good, a very fitting conclusion. It's a good film, but I don't think it's a great film like the first two. I do have some issues with it. Um, before I throw it over to you, Alpo, um, I'll tell you what, what, what I like about it. The, the tone is great. Again, I love the Old West. I love the joke about the Clint Eastwood and the yes. names. Yes. Um, I love the ending of the film and that the time machine has to be destroyed. But then it's weird that Doc Brown just comes with his own in the train. <laughs> he needed that to come back. So there is like another time machine. So yes. other adventures might happen. But to me, what sums up the, uh, the whole trilogy is when he says to Marty at the end there, when he has his wife now and kids and says, the future is whatever you make of it, Marty. So make it a good one. And that's yeah. what the movie, you know, no one can, you can't yes. control your past or your future. And that's what it's all about. It's up to you to create your own destiny and i love that message um i think some of the action sequences are good um i love the manure bit with biff yeah. and that's the thing that's through all three films it's yeah. a very very funny gag that carries over but a couple of things i don't like 
I just don't think the, the script is quite as tight and fast paced. There are some boring elements to it. Um, I think the actress is a fine actress that plays Doc Brown's love interest, but she's very annoying in this. Very steamerger. Yes. And she's very ditzy and kind of very dumb. And I don't really believe she's on Doc Brown's level intellectually, even though they, they do some of that, like they're, they're both into, it's not Hemingway, is it? Or no, uh, Jules Verne. Right. Yes. But I, I, I don't, I think that romance is very forced and that's the part of the film that doesn't work for me. Everything else works, but I think maybe if Doc Brown didn't have a love interest, I don't think he needed that. Um, it felt. You very think there's forced. an age cutoff for love interests in movies? Like once you're above the age of like fifty, like you know, we we just we don't really want to well, see that. No, I think you can do it. You just have to cast. <laughs> age is that a little bit of discrimination? In your, <laughs> uh, is that? In, in, in hey, your... I'm asking you. I'm not. I'm not saying my opinion. I'm asking. I you. think they're sweet. I think they're a sweet couple. For the record. I just think maybe another actress, their chemistry is not very, very strong. Yeah. Um, I I love Christopher Lloyd's performance there, um, but (laughs) it's, it's true what you say. It's like, it's kind of um, weird how she relates to him in terms of like the science. It's like, Oh, you love science. I have a telescope. And it's like, well, he's a time travel, like nuclear physicist guy. He, probably doesn't care that much about telescopes I, I <laughs> yeah it just just it it seemed awkward and clunky to me but uh alpo i'll throw it over to you what are your kind of initial thoughts on the the last film the ending of the trilogy i think it was it's going back to what i said before that the time period that they chose for this one just doesn't resonate with me or or the audience at the time the same way. Uh, when you pick something that's in the 18, was it the 1800s? 18, 1885. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's so long ago that um, you're, you don't relate to it as much. It's still an interesting, fun story, but, you know, going back to the 50s, going back to your childhood, um, just ha- it it's on a whole other level in people's minds. So I I don't think it clicked with people quite the same way, still fun. And, you know, I, I, I think it's true. The script was a little slow at times, like where are they going with this? Whereas the other two movies, you were pretty much being, you know, like before you knew what was happening, like the next plot point was hitting and, and it was much quicker and tighter for sure. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you there. The whole Michael J. Fox thing is like the Irish immigrants. Uh, yeah, that's them out in like one. the farm. I'm just like, what the hell? Like, first of all, why would they be Irish? I mean, I, I it just it just seems so random to me. And th- there's a couple of moments in this film, like I, I feel like this film, you could cut out half an hour of this film and you'd still get to the same point. Um, but that being said, I still have fun with the film. I think it's a solid, like the first two, I would give an A plus two. This one, I would give a solid like B plus slash A minus. I still have a lot of fun with it. It's a solid film and I'm, I'm still satisfied when I watched it. But uh, Stoops, I think you're, you're waiting for your turn here because I think you might be disagreeing with us. No, I, so I'm going to respectfully disagree a little bit. Okay. Um, I know I, I hear what you guys. So Alex, I'm hearing what you're saying about the fifties because I 100% agree. 
Um, and going back to the first two, what they did brilliantly in terms of an execution and budgetary and production standpoint was they used the same soundstage twice. Um, and they used it, they used it in real, like they used it, like you look at the clock tower and everything. And then, and then, and then you look at that whole scene and then what do they do? They go back to 1950 and that's all a soundstage. And then in the sequel, they go back to that same sound soundstage because they're back in the same setting again. So from a budgetary production perspective, it makes pure, it makes perfect sense. They're recycling some of the same footage, but from a different angle to see, okay, well now we've added another layer of, there's two Marty McFly's back in the past and they're just taking original scenes from that first movie and then overlaying like these, these additional experiences on top of what, 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 what already happened there. But I would argue that the third one is so original because it takes you away from all of that and puts you in this totally foreign place that it's like, it's like when I let, you know, when you talk about those classic spaghetti Westerns, like the Clint Eastwood stuff, um, I just, I absolutely love the setting. Um, no, it's not supposed to be like a traditional Western. Obviously there's a bit of a comedic, um, it's, there, there's, there's definitely, there's a comedic sort of tone to it. Um, so it's not a, it's not a dead serious Western, right? There's it's, it's, it's obviously a comedy, but I love it. I love um, what's his name. What's mad dog Tannen. I love turning yes. Biff into like, yep. Biff is just like, when you thought he couldn't get any worse, he's like the guy who's unofficially running the town. Yes. There's a sheriff. Yes. There's a deputy, but this guy is the, the law of the land. And like, there's that scene where, Oh, one of the key scenes. I love it where he's, he's, um, Marty McFly uh, is is coming to town and he goes into the saloon and they have he has the exchange. Oh, can I get some ice water? Ice? <laughs> and they're and they're 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 making fun of him because he's asking for ice water back in 1885. He goes in here, we drink whiskey, and you, and you start to see the steam coming out of this this little whiskey shot glass, right? And uh, and so that whole scene plays out. And then Mad Dog Tannen comes in and Marty McFly refers to him as a Mad Dog. And he goes, no one calls me Mad Dog. Dance! And he starts like shooting off the bullets at his, at his, uh, at his feet in order to get Marty to dance, which is such a well-played out scene. And, and, and just to make the things better is that Marty, I don't know if this was a, 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 a script choice or, or a Michael J. Fox choice, an actor's choice, but he's doing the the Michael uh, Michael Michael Jackson moonwalk. Right. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. And he actually yeah. uh, lip syncs a little bit. Not my love. And he actually he does the moonwalk so well. Um, and then there's that 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 mishap where he steps on the plank like in the floor in the floorboards and the spittoon of all like where everyone's spitting their tobacco hits Mad Dog in the face. And he is so fucking pissed. He is like the law. He is the law in this place, right? This is the wild, wild west. And what Mad Dog says goes, right? And so um, without any consequence, knowing that there's no consequences, he takes Marty in a fucking noose. And he's like, with this new courthouse, I think it's time we had a hanging. And he takes him um, by the neck and you see Marty McFly about to die uh, from, from, from being hanged. And it's just such, such an intense scene. And then you have doc Brown coming from, from the background there coming out of nowhere with this like state of the art sniper rifle. He's like, Tannen, I could shoot the fleas off a dog at 500 meters. 
and he shoots Mar- Marty down and he's like, Doc Brown wins the day with that sniper rifle. I love that scene. It is, it is incredible. It just gets you into the moment so well. It was so well yes. executed, that whole scene. I love it. I Again, I think that the film maintains the fun of the first Oh yeah, totally. And that child, totally. like, like it's very, very funny and I have fun with it. But I can't believe I forgot about this. This is why the film lacks a little bit for me compared to the other two. There's one fundamental flaw. The ending, when Doc Brown says to him, um, you destroyed the time machine because it caused too many problems, right? Like we basically screwed up the future, the past, and we got we we have to destroy it so no more problems occur. Yet he has a brand new time machine now and goes into the future with it at the end of the film. So I'm like, wait, aren't you like ignoring your own <laughs> lesson? It's like, no, Marty, you can't yeah. use it, yeah. but I know how to use it responsibly. So here I go and end, end of film. I and think I just we should have, we should like, have had a rule. We're not allowed to discuss plot holes in this, in this trilogy. But see, but that to me, but like, I usually agree. And I don't mind one or two little small plot holes, but that to me, you're going against now the theme of like the movie and what he said yeah, is dangerous. True. So that's, that's, that's my true. only, like if Doc Brown had destroyed the time machine he built to get back because he wanted to get back home, that would have been more satisfying, but they have to end it fantastical and a fantastical shot. But then that would have been like, yes, this caused too many issues. So we have to get rid of it. I, if the yeah. film had ended like that, it would have been on the same level as the other two, but that's the one big glaring issue for me anyway. Can I, okay, okay. Putting, sure. putting plot holes aside, because I hear what you're saying, um, I have to just reiterate that I love the fact that this is a Western because it takes us away from the what we've expected, which is the 1950s, the future, and it just puts us in this whole other world. Um, I'm not even a huge Western person, but I just I love this movie because it's a Western. I don't know why. Uh, I think it's just because you can play up the characters so much, like with Mad Dog Tannen and the Seamus, you know, M- Marty reprising himself again as another character. Leah Thompson, again, being like another you know reiteration of herself but this time a different character like you know the the her his like great 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 grandmother or whatever but what i love you know the scene that always sticks out to me the most or the whole part of the plot that i love is that they they're really up shit's creek without a paddle when it comes to that technology because gasoline does not exist you have this arrow that's that's when he's driving when he's first arriving back in 1885 he's going up against these these uh native well, uh, they call them Indians in the movie. Let's call let's call them Native Americans, right? Um, and so they're they're attacking him, right? And he's trying to drive by without getting unscathed, right? But one of the things is the arrows punctures the fuel line, and and all the gasoline leaks out. And so he's you know you're not going to a corn you're not going to a gas station down the street to pick up more gas, right? <laughs> and so it's kind of like in the in the first one where you have to generate the gigawatts of electricity from the lightning bolt. Well, now here's a new technological problem. He can't even get gasoline, right? And so they're they're trying to figure, okay, can we pull it pull it with horses? No, that's not going to work. The horses are going to only bring them up to 30 miles an hour. Um, all this sort of stuff. And at the very end, where they figure out they have to um, push, you know, how you know burn the train um burn burn the train uh fuel like get get the fire going as hot as possible in this steam locomotive to push him to push the delorean i love that scene and the fact that it's going towards a cliff like it just every time i get like a little bit nervous i'm like what if they don't make it past the point of no return you know what's going to happen i love that scene it keeps me on the edge of my seat 
Uh, every time he puts in one of those like special burning logs and it, and it explodes a little bit faster and he, and he accelerates. I love that scene. It is, it keeps me on the edge of my seat. I love it. And there's one thing that I want to mention that, that this movie is missing. And I I think I just realized it just now, like there's something that the second one and the third one are both missing that just like kind of takes away from the enjoyment a little bit. And that is Crispin Glover as George McFly. Fair. Just realized it. Fair. That is such an important aspect of the first movie. Uh, He was brilliant and he's just, mysteriously gone in in the other two movies i don't know why well there was something um, well, with, with the actor uh, there was a casting yeah. thing so uh yeah actually you're right misha so i was reading up on this so there was so crispin glover didn't want to sign off on the sequel uh and so they brought in this other guy to play george mcfly like in a very very brief scene where he enters as the grandfather like he's the grandfather at this point coming to marty mcfly's home who's like a 47 year old or whatever and, uh, and it's, he's, he has a backache. So he's, 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 he's hanging upside down on this like hovering thing. That's actually a different actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because Crispin didn't sign off on the sequel. And actually um, Leah Thompson was pretty pissed off about it. And there's actually still, she's still somewhat angry about it to this day um, because she liked the chemistry with her and Crispin from the first one. And so there was some resentment and disappointment when he didn't sign on for the sequel. Yes, and you can actually find an interview uh, with Crispin Lover explaining what happened. A lot of it was like they wouldn't agree to his pay scale with the union and they used kind of his character without his involvement. And there's always kind of like uh, pay stuff that you have to pay out for the actor and stuff. But a, a lot of like legality issues that went in, went into it. It's, it's really, really interesting. Um, I think Crispin Lover was being a bit of a diva. He's not Tom Cruise or anything um but it's it's an interesting it's like seven minutes on youtube you can find the clip um but uh, guys i want to ask you one question before our final thoughts alpo which one is your favorite of the trilogy which one's your least favorite you know your your uh, your worst to best kind of i mean i think it's obvious i mean the yeah like the first one was so good i love the biff scenes like they're just like so upsetting in the first one um but i have to give a nod to the second one there is a great biff scene where um where marty mcfly is going back and basically following biff throughout his just like a regular day in the life of biff and uh and you know these kids are playing out on the street and they kick their ball and the ball winds up in in biff's hands yes and and the kids are like Hey, that's our ball. We want our ball back. And he's like, this is your ball. And they're like, yeah, you want your ball? And he just throws it up into the neighbor's um, balcony. Yes. <laughs> and he says, go get it. Like, and he's just sort of watching just a day in the life of Biff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Anyways, first one was great. Second one was, was almost as good. Uh, third one was fun, but you know, not the same. Well, you know what, uh, Alpo, I I agree with you hundred percent. Like the the first one is the best, with the second one pretty pretty much equal. Like so so close. The fact that they made a sequel that good comp- to the comparable to the first one is amazing in itself. And then a, a satisfying third film 
not quite as good as the other two, but still a good solid film. Overall, a, a great trilogy. Yes. What about you, Stoops? It's it's difficult. So because I kind of treat number three like its own little island because it again because it moves away from the fifties and and they mm. and so I have to I have to give the producers and the writers and everyone involved some credit for this one because they did such a good job of of creating this this whole other world spaghetti western the standoffs the um, the duels the um the you know working with the horses and kind of the ch the chasing scenes and the train everything just came together i mean even people can people can you know criticize mary steenburgen and and doc brown i think they're adorable even even like the 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 festival dun, 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 dun. there's like the band everyone's having a good time you know you know, Marty discovers the first Frisbee. That's actually true. It was actually a pie plate. That's actually real. Um, that's a real fact. Yeah. So like the pie plate and then him shooting the guns for the first time. And he has this, this pistol for the first time and he crack shots everything. Um, I love, I love that movie. Um, but I don't, I mean, it's okay. So to answer your question in a short way, <laughs> which I'm not known for, um, number one, was it's kind of like Star Wars, right? It's like number one, without number one, you can't have number two and number three. It would not exist. So I gotta say number one um, is is by far the best. Number two and three is kind of a toss-up for me because like okay, I I love the future. I love the the imaginative future that Robert Zemeckis created, not only in the, in terms of the script with him and and Gail, but also just bringing it to life visually. But I don't know, man. I just, I love the Western too. So I think, I think two and three are a toss up for me. The second and the third film couldn't be more different in terms of tone. Oh, for sure. Uh, and that's for why, sure. like, I, I do agree with you. They took a risk with the third film and I'm yeah. glad it's so different compared to the second. The second one gets dark, a little yeah. more gritty. And the third one is yeah, back yeah. to light, lots of yellows and, and brights. Yeah. Um, well, and I like that. And, and, and let's be real. It's kind of like that, that goes in line with what we would expect from a well-done trilogy. And I mean, look at Star Wars. You have New Hope, which gets us into the Star Wars universe, okay? Which is, you have to create a universe, right? And, and just expose people to what is the force? What is a Jedi, whatever. Empire, very dark movie, some major plot twists. And you're at your lowest point where there's absolutely no hope for the rebellion. And then the number three, you have fucking Ewoks, right? So it's kind of like the same thing, right? Like, it's like, you want, you want something light at the end, which resolves everything. And I think number three in this case does what the Return of the Jedi does, which gives you that nice wrap up at the end that makes you feel good. Nice. Um, all right, guys. So I'm just going to give my final thoughts on this trilogy. What I love about this trilogy, more so than other ones, if, if I'm ever like a, a Sunday matinee, I want to watch something good, but that will give me some good comedy, makes me feel good, kind of warms my heart, like I said. This is the kind of trilogy that I would put in. And that's the gift that Back to the Future gave to me. It has a, sentim a sentimental value and a heart about it that not a lot of other film series have. Um, and that's why it's, it's so special to me. It's not my favorite. We've already talked about my favorite one, but it's definitely up there with one of my favorites. Um, anyway, Alpo, your final thoughts. Just an amazing trilogy. It's like I said, it's, it's part of Americana, you know, yep. it's there, there's something about the way that they wrote these movies that, that made it a part of our culture. 
Um, and for that reason, I really hope that they don't do a reboot. Um, oh, I yeah. hope that they don't try to make a Back yeah. to the Future 4. Um, just leave it alone. It's leave it alone. It's leave beautiful. it alone. Alex, I couldn't agree with you more. My final thoughts, first of all, number one, leave it the fuck alone. These reboots are killing me. I well, why not remake it? They remake everything. But I don't, I don't want them to make it. I love the original Sorry, way. I want to clarify something. I'm okay with reboots, but like additional sequels. Oh, additional sequels. Like, oh, you know, okay. Additional sequels. Those are what kill me. But like, yeah, you know, yeah. for example, like the Batman reboot when they did Batman Begins, brilliant. You know, like just like totally yeah, yeah. change the whole Fair. look and tone and Fair. just new actors, new characters. Sure. Like I, I would be okay with that. I would watch it, um, but like another sequel, like a Back to the Future Four, mm, no. And I, no. so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that one step further and say that I don't want to see another sequel, and I also don't want to see a reboot because I don't, I just don't want them to mess with something that's so good. It's kind of like with the Ghostbusters, you know? It's like why did they have to make that reboot? I don't know. So for me, my final thoughts: love the time travel. Love the repeating gags of Marty waking up like in every movie and like Leah Thompson's there to like wipe down his sweat and yeah. the gag just keeps working. It's it's magic, right? I love the, the gags. I love the comedy. I love the casting. I love the writing. Everything just came together to make this a perfect trilogy that I watch again every every two to three years. Um, and I, I think it I think it's because it you know, I came of a I was born in this era. And, and, and for me, some of my favorite movies were from the late seventies, you know, alien star Wars. And then you have like Terminator and, and, and back to the future ghostbusters in the eighties. And then in the nine. So it's just that it's right in that era of like some of the best, some of my favorite movies between, you know, between the early seventies and uh, sorry, late seventies and early nineties, it fits right in the middle, 1985. What a wonderful time for, of filmmaking um, just, just a great period in our history in terms of just going to this, going to the cinema and not being disappointed. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with that being said, that was our episode on back to the future. The trio is back and boy, does it feel good to be back. We're going to be giving you lots of exciting new content coming up as always, you know, please follow us, support the channel, follow the Facebook page, and we'll give you more exciting, uh, movie discussions and current affairs and until now this is andrew alex and misha signing off see you next time